Every single Sunday around here, we talk about our purpose and mission here at Southdale. The reason we exist. We believe that we are a church that exists for the glory of God and the good of our world. That's what we do. That's why we do it. That God might be glorified and our world might be better. We talk also about our mission, what it is we do. Our mission is to help all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds become a little bit more like Jesus Christ every single day. That's our purpose. God's glory, the good of our world, the mission, helping people become more like Jesus Christ. But as we talk about purpose and mission, one of the things that strikes me is every mission needs to have an end. Every mission needs a goal, a, a, a target, an objective. You hear from time to time people talking about missions going awry because it was not clear what the objective or the goal of the mission was. Our mission has an end, right? It's right there in the very mission statement itself. Our mission has a goal. Our mission is Christ-likeness, becoming more like Jesus Christ. That we might be, as God predestined for us, as God planned in advance for us, that we might be fully conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. The good news in all of that is that's not just our mission as a church, that's God's purpose for our lives as well. You say, hold on, Pastor, are you putting things in God's mouth? How do you know that that's what God's purpose for me is, that I would be like Jesus? It's because He says so. You go all the way back to the very beginning. If you listen to what God was saying to God's self, what God was saying to His own self as He created humanity, you'll hear Him say that very thing. It was His stated purpose when He created us. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. From the very beginning, God said for humanity, my, my goal is to make them like us. And God has been up to that task ever since. Now some of you are probably thinking, hold on a second, Pastor, I thought we are in this series called Hashtag Truth. What in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked, as my friend George would say. That is a good question. In fact, that question has everything to do with these hashtag truths. One last time, and you hear you can turn to your neighbor and say, thank goodness this is the last time if I have to hear him say what a hashtag truth is one more time, I think I'm going to lose my mind. This is the last time, I promise. In this series, we've been talking about hashtag truths, and a hashtag truth is, is a summary. It's where we take something complicated and we boil it down to something simple and something memorable. And, and Jesus addresses our tendency to do that. In particularly, he addresses our tendency to do that in regard to the law, to take the law and boil it down to little bits and pieces that we can store away and remember. And what Jesus understands is that our tendency to simplify often leaves us with a partial picture. We don't get the full truth because we've simplified it down to our convenient little hashtag. Now, that's one thing when we're hashtagging what we might see on TV or might be going on in some sports event. It's another thing entirely when we're hashtagging the law. Because the law, we've talked about this also, the law is not some arbitrary list of God's preferences. The law is actually an overflow of God's character. 
The law is a is an expression of God's nature. It shows us, at least it begins to reveal to us what God is like and who He expects us to be. And so when we're hashtagging the law, we end up with a partial picture of what God is like. We've said all throughout this series, it's a lot more of a caricature than it is a full portrait. We tend to emphasize certain things, other details we leave out entirely. And the problem with hashtagging truth in regard to the law is that when you end up with a partial picture of who God is, you get a distorted idea of what He wants us to be. That is our mission, to become like Him. That's the objective, that's the goal of our life, to be made like Him. And if we become what the hashtag truths reveal, we become little more than characters, caricatures of God's character rather than being fully conformed to the likeness of God's Son. So this really has everything to do with what this series is all about. Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount and He, he begins filling in the missing details in the hashtagging of the law that we might get a fuller picture of who He wants us to be. So back to the sermon. If God's purpose is to make us like Him, and it is, we've covered that already, if God's purpose is to make us like Him, what's God like? What is God like? If Don't say anything out loud here, but in your mind, I just want to know what your thoughts here are. I Think about this for a second. If I said, finish this sentence, how would you finish it? Ready? In your mind, not out loud, I don't want you to ruin it for the person next to you. In your mind, finish this sentence. God is... God is... There are a lot of ways you could fill in that blank and be biblically accurate. In fact, there are several places in the Bible where the Bible says God is. For example, in Genesis 21-22, it says God is with you. In Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. In Deuteronomy 3, 22, God is the one who is fighting for you. Deuteronomy 4, 24, God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4, 31, God is a compassionate God. Deuteronomy 33, 27, God is our dwelling place. 2 Samuel 22, verse 33, God is my strong fortress. 2 Chronicles 39, God is gracious and compassionate. Psalm 11, verse 1, God is a righteous judge. Psalm 16, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in our time of trouble. Psalm 54, 4, God is my helper. Psalm 68, verse 20, God is a God of deliverances. Isaiah 12, verse 2, God is my salvation. He is my strength and my song. Daniel 2, 47, God is a revealer of mysteries. Mark 12, 29, God is one. John 3, 33, God is true. John 4, 24, God is spirit. Romans 8, 31, God is for us. Romans 8.33, God is the one who justifies. 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, God is faithful. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, God is able. 1 John 1, 5, God is light. There are a lot of ways you could finish that sentence and be true to what the Bible says about God. Yet chances are, when I said, finish this sentence, you didn't think of any one of those, at least not first. You didn't think of any of those, did you? When I said, in your mind, finish this sentence, God is, what do you stick in the blank? Okay, now you're allowed to say it out loud. God is what? God is my Father. God is what? God is, 1 John 4, 8. God is love. God is all of these things and more, but before any of those other things, God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. John Wesley, uh, one of the things John Wesley wrote, it was a group of, uh, a set of explanatory notes. That's what he called them. It was kind of like the John Wesley Study Bible, how some of your Bibles have notes down at the bottom helping explain what you read. This was John Wesley's version of that. And, and in John Wesley's study Bible on 1 John verse 4, verse 8, Wesley writes, and this is paraphrasing here, he says, we often talk about God being different things. We talk about God being holy or God being righteous or God being wise. Yet all those things that we use to describe what God is like are adjectives. God is holy, but rarely do we say God is holiness. God is righteous, but rarely is God called righteousness. But here, John Wesley says it's different. God, not only is God loving, adjective, John boldly declares that God is love. And in so doing, Wesley writes, John reveals this love is God's reigning attribute which sheds an amiable glory on all His other perfections. God is love. Going back to the hashtag truth, if the law is an expression of God's character, if, God is an, or if the law is an overflow of who God is, and if love is the most essential aspect of God's character, it should come as no surprise to us that the law tells us that we ought to love. And the law does speak about love. The law tells us that we ought to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The law tells us also that we are supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And not only are those things in the law, those things Jesus Himself says are the two greatest commandments. The two commandments on which the rest of the law and the prophets all hang. Love is at the very heart of God's character. And love is at the very heart of God's law. So how then has love been hashtagged? If you have your Bibles open, Matthew chapter 5 starting at verse 43. Jesus says, and Matthew records, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
He causes His sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You've heard it said, Jesus says. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. And the law does say that. If you wanted to look it up, it's there in Leviticus chapter 19, in the 18th verse. It says, don't seek revenge and don't bear a grudge among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The law clearly says we ought to love our neighbor. But that's not all Jesus says that we've heard. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. There's just one problem here. The law actually never says that second part. In fact, if you're reading out of one of the NIV Bibles, you'll notice there's no footnote there because there's no place you can turn to in the Old Testament. No place you can turn to in the law where the law says, hate your enemies. Now before we go any farther, we should probably define those terms. Biblically speaking, both love and hate are not primarily matters of emotion. Biblically speaking, both love and hate are first and foremost decisions that we make and actions that we perform. To love somebody is to treat them as if I bear responsibility to them, uh, to treat them as if, as if they belong to my family, and I, there are things that are expected of me in relation to them. To hate them is to treat them as an outsider, to turn them away, to say to them, you have no claim on any sort of action or any sort of gift of mine. It's not emotion. It is, it is the way that we treat people. But even there, the law says we ought to love our neighbor. Never does it say we are free to hate our enemies. But the fact remains that in Jesus' day, that was the common understanding of what the law said about loving our neighbor. In Jesus' day, the fact that the law said love your neighbor implied to many people that if they're not my neighbor, I don't have to love them. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus met somebody with that very question, didn't he? Remember the story of the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks what he's lacking, what he needs to do to get into Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus talks to him about the commandments, talks to him about loving his neighbor as himself. The man asks the question, who is my neighbor? Who do I have a responsibility towards? And who can I leave out? In Jesus' day, that commandment to love your neighbor implied to the common person that if they're not my neighbor, they have no claim on me at all. It didn't come from the law. Where did that idea come from? I think this is very natural to human, to the human way of seeing the world. Human beings very naturally divide the world up into groups. We've talked about that before. Even played a game in here before, demonstrating that, that we very quickly are, 
we very quickly, we very naturally divide up into groups and assume the whole point is competition. As soon as we human beings talk about us, there is always by implication of them. And so if we are supposed to love us, if we're supposed to love our neighbors, clearly there's no obligation for us to love them. There's just a problem. The law is supposed to show us how to become more like God. And God's not like that. God doesn't divide the world up into us and them and pour His favor on some and leave out others. Jesus Himself says that in this very teaching. Look at your Father, He says. God sends, causes the sun to rise on both the evil and the good. God sends His rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. God doesn't divide the world up into groups and loves them and leaves others out. We see it not only in Jesus' teaching, we see it in Jesus' example. And I talked about this with the kids today if they were listening. Who was it that Jesus prayed for? Those that shouted His praises or those that demanded His death? It's there in Paul's writings. Paul says, you want to know what love looks like you want to see what love is like? God shows us. God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were sinners, not while we were God's friends, not while we were good people, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible's clear that God's not in the business of dividing humanity up into us and them so He can bless us and curse them. God is in the reconciliation business. His purpose, Paul says, is to take the two that once were far away and bring them back together and out of those two make one new humanity reconciling both of them to God. That's the business God is in. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy isn't like God at all. But you know who it is like? It's like us. That's the natural human tendency to love those who love you and to do good to those who do good to you. Jesus says that in this very teaching. Love those who love you, you and every other tax collector, you and every other sinner, you and every other person who sold out family and friends to serve the Romans. Even, even the dirty, rotten, no good tax collectors love those who love them. And greet, that means to welcome and wish well. Greet those who are only your own people. You and every other pagan do that. Loving those who love you, greeting those who greet you, that's the natural human response. God says, I want to make something more out of you. I want you to make you like me. Jesus calls it being sons of our Heavenly Father. You do know what being a son of something is in the Bible, right? When you are a son of something in Scripture, that means you are like the one of whom you are the son. The two disciples, I don't know, Peter might have given them a run for the money for this title, but the two loudest, most brash disciples, you know what their nickname was, right? The sons of thunder, because they were just like thunder. Or, or, or the disciple that found Paul even when the church 
pushed him away and wanted nothing to do with him. The disciple that went and found Paul and brought him into the community of faith, you know, he was, he was an encourager, so much so that they called him the son of encouragement. Jesus says, you want to be like God? You want to be a son of your heavenly Father? You have to be different than the natural human. You have to love like He does. So Jesus, what are we supposed to do? Love your enemies. Not just your neighbor. Love your enemy. What do you mean, Jesus? What, what do you mean love them? Love is not just affinity. Love is not just affection. It's not an emotion. Love, remember, is a decision. Love is an action. Remember how Jesus showed what love looks like when He died for us. Love them like I loved you. And pray. Pray for those who persecute you. Not just pray about them. Pray for them. When Paul explains this teaching of Jesus in in Romans 12, when he talks about, about loving our enemies at the end of that chapter, he puts it this way, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. What is it like to pray that God would bless those who want to do us harm? I was thinking about that this morning on the drive over here as I was listening to the radio and the reports of first one and then two churches in Egypt that were bombed this morning during their Palm Sunday worship. What does it mean to pray that God would bless those that persecute you? That's awful hard to do, Father. That doesn't come naturally to me. I know. But I want to make you more than what you are. I want you to make you like... What did Jesus do as they nailed Him to the cross? He loved and prayed. We want to be sons of our Father. Those are the kinds of things we must... And not just say, you know, I love them because I, I don't hate them because I'm not supposed to hate anyone. It means to actively serve and bless those who are our enemies. And if that wasn't troubling enough, Jesus wraps all of this up with what, at least for me, is the most troubling verse in all the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We tend to get hung up over that word perfect. That perfect carries all sorts of baggage with it. In fact, the first thing most people hear, say or think when they hear us say, be perfect as your father is perfect, is they say, well, nobody's perfect, right? Here's some good news for you. The word Jesus uses, or the word Matthew uses to translate what Jesus said isn't perfect because Matthew didn't speak English. The word Matthew used is teleos. Teleos. It's a Greek word. It's an adjective. comes from the Greek word telos. You know what telos means? Telos means 
the end. The end. Now, do you remember what we said at the very start about missions and purpose? We said every mission needs an end. Jesus closes His teaching by saying, keep that end in mind. What is our end? To be like God. What is God like? God is love. Who does God love? Not just those who are His friends, even those who are His enemies. So when Jesus says be perfect, He says remember that goal. Keep your eyes focused on the target. Fixed on the prize. Remember the end for which you are created. And don't just remember it. Live it. Live out that goal of love. Live out that end of Christ-like love just like your Heavenly Father does. Jesus, if I'm going to love like that, you're going to have to change me. Can't you just hear Jesus chuckle to himself and say, I am in the business of changing people.